The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. It's just gone five past 12 on this Monday, the 23rd of May, 2022. That was Laura Jersky with the news. She'll be back at one o'clock. Today, we're going to be chatting about fraud in the corporate sector, what we can do to prevent it, what we need in terms of manpower to enable us to be able to perhaps catch it in time or what to do reactively should our companies and corporations be the victims of fraud. I must remind you that the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of Chai FM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You don't have to be told that fraud and corruption is a massive problem in South Africa, not just South Africa, but internationally, but more so in South Africa because we're an emerging economy and we have such a massive disparity between the haves and the have-nots that every single fraud and every single corrupt act has a direct impact on service delivery and those that need money the most. Fraud is not confined to the public sector. It's also in the private sector. To help make sense of all of this, I'm joined today in studio by Zakir Mohammed and Chris Beer, both of which are members of the executive of the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. We're going to be chatting about what to do in the event of a fraud taking place. How likely is it that a fraud may take place? What you need to do in respect of um, gathering evidence, how this should be done. And of course, the most important aspect, ensuring that the people you put into positions of authority to investigate these type of crimes are suitably qualified. Zakira, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Chad. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I almost called you Zaki. I thought that'd be a bit forward. <laughs> Zakir, let's talk about fraud as, as, a, as an overall problem worldwide. Are we seeing a growth in fraud? And if so, why? Absolutely, Chad. We're definitely seeing a growth in fraud, uh, in various different types of fraud over the last couple of years, especially since the COVID pandemic hit. Uh, I think one of the key drivers of that is the pressure that a lot of individuals and organizations are facing. So at an individual level, we're seeing a lot of uh, organizations being targeted internally by the employees, externally by suppliers, etc. We're also seeing a lot of syndicate activity because obviously syndicates are very opportunistic and so they look for any disruptive type of environment or situation in which to perpetrate their frauds. So on the cybercrime front there's definitely been a rise in cybercrimes. Organizations are being targeted with ransomware attacks, especially this year we've seen significant and large ransomware attacks on large organizations in South Africa. Insurance fraud is on the rise year on year since 2019. A lot of the statistics around insurance fraud in South Africa has been in relation to fake death claims. And it's not surprising given that we in the last two years have been living in a, in a pandemic. Uh, there's been a lot of loss of lives. And so fraudsters have found that an opportunistic scheme to try and perpetrate against um, insurance organizations. Another key driver is the state of flux that we're in. In 2020, organizations in a very short period of time had to shut down their offices and get all employees working at home. That created a lot of vulnerability for the organizations because obviously your IT infrastructure, etc., with employees working at home is not as strong as one would have in your physical offices. 
and then post 2020 from 2021 onward and currently in this year as well we've got organizations facing the diaspora of having some employees working remotely some employees com coming into the office and so that's also created some vulnerabilities in the organizations themselves uh, and obviously the cost of living is rising um, month on month um, and so that's created a lot of pressure on individuals and organizations. So Zaki, one thing I'm taking away from all of this is that fraudsters are ahead of the game. When one looks at South Africa, when we went into lockdown in March of 2020, there were already fake websites up offering to sell PPE to small and medium-sized companies, and even bigger companies and government was caught out with fraud and corruption within the PPE space. I think it's difficult for people to actually visualize and understand that fraudsters regard what they do as a profession. They need to keep ahead. Absolutely. I always say that, you know, we wake up, we go to our jobs at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning, we earn our, our honest living. And fraud is not something that the average person or the average organization deals with on a daily basis. It's not what we do as the core of our business. However, when it comes to fraudsters, this is what they do. This is what they're willing to invest their time, their energy and their resources in. And so they're always looking at new ways to perpetrate the fraud. And so to a very large extent, they're always ahead of the curve in the methodologies that they use, in the opportunities that they, tr that they try to find for themselves. And so wherever they see a system weakness or an environmental disruption, they're going to use that opportunistically to perpetrate their frauds and try and steal and defraud as many individuals and organizations as possible because this is what they do every single day. This is their business. And you, you mention it that it, it is their profession, basically. You get a lot of syndicate activity where these syndicates are almost set up like proper companies where you've got different role players um, playing key roles within the syndicate in order to perpetrate these frauds. So you might have, for example, someone that researches what's going on in the markets, what's going on, what is topical, or where they can find vulnerabilities in organizations. You've got some syndicates that have even set up sort of call centers where they try to, you know, front as though they're legitimate business to try and defraud the average person on the street. And so you've got a whole lot of role players playing different roles in a fraudulent syndicate type organization. Um, and so they, re they really resource themselves up to, to try and target individuals and organizations. Chris, for me, one of the biggest problems that our country faces is the fact that we're seeing a rise in incidents of fraud, corruption, and other financial crimes, but we're not seeing the state in a position to counter this massive, massive rise. Some say it's capacity issues. Some say it's budgetary issues. Other people say it's just outright attitude. But the concern I have is when one looks at the South African police force, there's 180,000 members. When one looks at the Hawks, General LeBeer came out, who's head of the, the Hawks, and he said they are 49% capacitated. So 1% less than half of what they actually need to investigate. And with all due respect to the general, I think they counted everybody they possibly could, whether somebody was on leave, whether somebody was on suspension, whether somebody was working out their last months of, 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 of service before they went on pension, whether somebody was an administrative clerk. I think to make up that 49% to be able to report back to Parliament, they counted absolutely everybody they possibly could, and they still only came up with 49%. This means that there is a severe lack of the 
of, of, of people with the correct mindset and more important, the correct qualifications to investigate these kind of crimes, which opens up an opportunity for the private sector to get involved. Are we seeing the state embracing the private sector yet and involving the private sector more in the, in the inclusion of the investigation of complex financial crimes? Chad, one important aspect to remember that our industry is not a nine-to-five uh, job. It's not a, a nine-to-five career. If, if you think that you're going to enter this industry and you're going to go to work in the morning, go to uh, home in the afternoon, that's it's not how it works. So in terms of the public-private partnerships, we've reached out a hand last year in collaboration with the FSB um, to assist various uh, authorities with those type of partnerships to first of all assist in the investigation of those crimes, secondly to make resources available on a pro bono basis to assist them and also the transferring of skills. So we, we, we're planning further uh, meetings uh, uh, that's going to come up in due course uh, but the problem is uh, that we are ready but the public sector, specifically SAPs and the Hawks and SIU and those individual uh, organizations need to come to the table. I don't think they are ready for what we are offering. So from a capacity perspective, we all agree that the state is lacking in terms of resources and infrastructure. Is the private sector ready to assist? Yes, Jet, we are definitely, we are. Um, we've, we've offered the public sector three hours per person, per month. Now, if you look at, we've got about 1,000 investigators, that gives us 3,000 3, hours per, per month to assist. So we, we need that public-private partnership to come to the table and, and make sure that happens. I think it's very important. We're sitting at a situation where we saw in the mid-90s the outsourcing of the patrolling of our streets to private security companies. We see that the security industry is a massive employer in South Africa. In fact, they replace mining as the single biggest employer in the private sector. So if the police have acknowledged the role that the private security are playing in terms of contact crime prevention and reaction, they need to acknowledge the fact that they need to engage more where the private sector can render so much more assistance because complex financial crimes are exactly that. They're complex. And where do those minds sit within the private sector? And I think what you said about those three hours per investigator a month is something that, that really needs to be looked at because it's, it's, it assists. We've heard about law firms offering services in respect of assisting with the um, recommendations of Zondo. We've seen that the AFU isn't quite capacitated where they should be. The MPA needs the assistance. So let's hope we get to that point. When we come back, I want to chat more about what kind of a person it takes to be involved in forensic investigations and forensic audits and uh, to, to find out more about how these people can educate themselves further and perhaps our organizations can find the people that fit the mold. You're listening to Confidential Brief today. We're in conversation with the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM, broadcasting worldwide on chaifm.com. 
Com. Today I'm in conversation with Zakir Mohammed and Krista Beer from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners, an organization set up specifically to enable people to be correctly qualified and placed in terms of the rise in financial crime. Now, I know that is a very, very vague description because it's far deeper than that. So, Zaki, give us a, a description of the ICFP, its founding origins, and where it finds itself now. So, thank you very much, Jan. So, the ICFP, the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners, is a self-regulatory body in South Africa. And the vision and mission of the ICFP for its members and the broader, the broader forensic industry in South Africa is to foster the development and empowerment of individuals that want to operate in the investigation space in South Africa. So we focus a lot on educating our members in relation to how to go about conducting investigations, what are the best practices, etc., in terms of investigating, report writing, etc. We also, throughout the year, every year, host numerous development sessions and seminars and webinars uh, in order to educate and empower people about new fraud typologies and methodologies, etc., so that we can try to also keep ahead of the curve when it comes to fraudulent activity. So those are some of the initiatives that the ICFP does. But I think to sum it up in, in, in one sentence, the ICFP is geared toward making the forensic industry and the investigating of all types of commercial crime in South Africa as strong as possible. And so we're always looking at new and innovative ways in which we as an organization can do that. So Chris, I think the biggest concern for me in seeing the capacity issues within the state is that there's a reliance on the private sector now. I see it every single day where a docket needs to be put together. A statement has to be in the correct format. The evidence has to be obtained in a certain manner. The police need to verify the information by getting a 205 signed off, which is a, a search warrant for either a cell phone or for a bank account, whatever the case may be. And then the matter gets enrolled and hopefully prosecuted. Somewhere along the line, the asset forfeiture unit needs to get involved so that there can be an interim restraint, which can later become a preservation order, because ultimately we're looking for restitution. All of this being said, it sounds complicated. And we know that the police themselves are battling, the hawks are battling, the IDs battling. So we have a group within the private sector who come along and they are now, in inverted commas, fraud investigators. They go work for the corporates. They have to obtain information. They use maybe an intelligence-based system. But how do we know they have the correct qualifications? How do we know that they are obtaining the information in the correct manner and fashion? How do we know we're not going to come back and get bitten with the fruit of the poison tree um, concept? What is it that your organization does to ensure that the people that bear your designation, Forensic Practitioner South Africa, are in fact equipped to be able to ensure that there's a prosecutable and actionable case handed over to the state? Chad, certification is, is really, really important. Uh, earning a, a professional designation is the ultimate goal. But there's a whole process that we go through to give you that professional designation. So not every person is a forensic investigator. Your personalities might differ, your attitude might differ. It's not CSI. This is, this is serious stuff. So when we look at uh, do the evaluation on a potential member, we go through all those credentials to make sure that person has got those traits, those qualifications, those skills to minimize the fraud risk uh, for, their, for, their, for their clients, maybe the public sector, private sector, does not really matter. 
And then further development is critical. We always uh, pressure our members to do their CPD as continuous professional development. That's important, like the Q said. We, uh, we need to keep, let people keep up to date with best practices, new methodologies, training and um, investigation techniques that differs. Listen, we, 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 we sit with very complex cases these days, with the, earth, with the, with the life of technology that we're living with, Cases are becoming very complex, and we need to ensure that investigators are equipped to do those investigations. So certification, to summarize certification and awarding a professional designation is your stamp that that person that's going to work for you, do the work for you, has, uh, has first of all, has got a certain level of uh, skills and training behind his name, and lastly is is under a code of conduct. Whenever <clears throat> something does go wrong, then that you have recourse in, in um, approaching the ICFP to take action on your behalf. So, Zaki, before um, we went on air, I was having a conversation with Chris. I started my career in 1992. That's 30 years ago. And in those days, we didn't have cybercrime. We didn't have complex financial crime. There was financial crime. There was fraud. But it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. And I was what you'd call a door kicker in law enforcement. Come the year 2000, 2001, which is 20 years ago, I stopped kicking down doors. I realized that there's a need for research. You spend 98 to 99% of your time building that case using evidence that you obtain either through open source intelligence or through the audit process. You have to draft statements, etc. With that in mind, there's still a lot of people out there, like Chris said, they watch CSI, they have this incorrect impression. How would you define the right personality of a person coming into the fraud investigation space? Yeah, Chad, that's a very, very good question. And I always say that you know, there's, there seems to be, in my view, a misconception that, you know, to do an investigation, you just need to be able to read documents and interview individuals. However, it's a lot more complex than that. I think the, the qualities one needs to have is definitely an attention to detail, because when you're dealing with any commercial crime, the devil is definitely in the detail. You need to have a strategic mind in the way that you think about an investigation. Something that I always advise clients on when you start off an investigation is don't just rush off and you know start interviews and etc think very carefully about what are you trying to achieve what fraud are you dealing with what evidence would you need to, to to substantiate the allegations or to either prove or disprove the allegations plan your investigation plan the methodology and so there needs to be a strategic thought process to that it also needs you you also need to be someone passionate about fighting the good fight and fighting fraud, etc., because it is a taxing industry to work in. At the end of the day, you are dealing with fraudsters. They're going to try every, every trick in the book to try and discredit you, try and discredit your investigation, the procedures that you followed, uh, and then on the merits to try and attack your findings when you produce your investigation report. And so you need to have a level of tenacity and commitment to the work that you do. You need to be someone that is strong to stand by your principles, someone with a high level of ethics, um, so that when you're faced with difficult situations, your ethical principles always stand true and you're not afraid to speak up for what is right and to do what is right in the correct manner. And so it's a multitude of skills, but I think it starts off with dedication, passion, strategic thinking, attention to detail and not cutting corners. You cannot cut corners when you're doing any investigation. You need to have a keen eye and a keen interest 
to, to want to look everywhere. And also during the course of your investigation to think about, am I going down the right path in terms of investigating this fraud or do I need to rethink my strategy? So Chris, it's become more complex to investigate crime, but building a docket and making sure the statements are in the correct format and the evidence pack is presented correctly and obtained legally, um, there's a manner and fashion to it. I referred to myself previously as being a door kicker and I had to make this change. Do we see people still thinking that there's a lot of door kicking involved or are we seeing people coming into the industry understanding that it can be, and I don't want to use the mundane, but it can be difficult, it can be laborious, especially going through reams upon reams of documentation? Chad, I think we're fortunate. We started in, in 2013, we started with a new um, training or development initiative where we offered examinations to youngsters and uh, and I think it's paying off now. Those people understand that we're not, not coming from a door-kicking environment anymore. Those, those uh, type of investigators are, are phasing out of our industry. It's, it's a professional industry. It's a, you need that professional skills and training. You need that ethical values. So yes, we've um, I think we've done a lot. We've 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 trained close to two thousand individuals during the last seven eight years, and those are pe those people those people are entering the industry now as and becoming middle managers. So the the impact of that development phase on only being felt now as people progress in their careers. We're chatting today to Zakir Mohammed and Krista Beer from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take more about, talk more about um, what kind of courses are offered by what organizations that are recognized by the ICFP. And then very excitingly, we're going to chat about the upcoming conference. Today's song for the halfway mark, I chose something that has one of the most incredible intros. I will always remember this intro as a child. It's a song by Buffalo Springfield. It's called Stop Children, What's That Sound? There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop children What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down There's bad lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance from behind Time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down A field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs and they're carrying signs Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, 
Yeah, that's an incredible song. One of the greatest intros of all songs. I don't know, maybe I'm biased. Maybe music from the 70s and the 80s gets me, but that one really, really does. We're in conversation today with two executive members of the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. It's a wonderful name, that, Commercial Forensic Practitioners. And I remember in the early days, um, when we used to refer to forensic investigations, people would automatically assume it was pathology or blood splatter analysis. Do you still get those questions, Sakir? Absolutely. I think there's two ways to look at it. Some people look at us and think that we like Horatio Kane from CSI. And one of my colleagues a few years ago said, you know, are you those guys that hide in the trees and look for, look for dodgy people? And I said, no, we're actually professionals and this is what we do. Um, and so I explained to him, so yeah, you, you do get the odd, the odd oddball question uh, in terms of what we do. But I think over the last couple of years, um, as the ICFP, we've created a lot of awareness about the work that we do, uh, what a forensic practitioner entails. A lot of our clients in the private and the public sector, interestingly, understand what this industry is about now. And I think as we move forward, there'll be a greater understanding of the actual work that we do. And I've also seen, especially in the legal sphere, with a lot of matters, there's been a shift in a lot of reliance placed on the work that forensic practitioners do. For one example, when it comes to forensic accountants and the work that they do, obviously they follow the numbers when it comes to any commercial crime. But when you're dealing with any legal matter, there's also a great reliance on them doing a quantification of damages claim. And so there's a lot of understanding of the value of the work that they do. So that's one example. On the IT forensic side, there's also a greater understanding of the work that the IT forensic practitioner does when it comes to not just investigating commercial crimes and looking for evidence or data evidence, but also um, in, for example, litigation processes, utilizing their services to find relevant documentations for just a, a commercial matter. And so I think as we move forward and create more awareness, there's a greater understanding and appreciation of the work that the commercial for forensic practitioner does. My firm that I work for actually used the name forensic in its title and was the first independent investigation company to use that word. It was also the first branded independent investigation company. So people would come up all the time to, to myself and my colleagues and ask pathology-based questions, ballistic-based questions, where it explains that forensic means the use of a science in the investigation of a crime. And in our particular instance, it's financial crime investigation. And you're 100% right. The public have begun to now realize, we don't get those questions anymore. Mm -hmm. People don't stop us now and ask us why the word forensic is there. Do we do, we do all these, these, these pathology-type things? And I think the public have become far more aware and sadly i think it's because of the state of of our country in terms of fraud and corruption becoming a national sport chris let's talk about the educational qualifications that are available out there i think it's very important that and i mentioned this early in the conversation it's so easy to destroy a case if evidence isn't obtained correctly that's just a minor aspect of a broader investigation but it means that the person conducting the investigation can't be somebody who comes from a security background or just anybody from a policing background who may have worked patrols on shifts or a soldier. It takes a specifically orientated 
person who has a specific skill set. So what kind of qualifications are available out there? Chad, there's, there's, it all depends on the, your level of your skills and, and, and prior to, uh, previous training <coughs> development that you had. But we must remember one important aspect. is There's a, there's a lot of training being, being offered by unaccredited and unregistered organizations worldwide and even in South Africa. And I, I, I'm being approached on a daily basis for, for that accreditation, which will, will give them that green stamp of approval uh, and we generally don't do that because we cannot ensure that the quality of training that's been provided to the investigators in South Africa doesn't have to be a member of the ICFP but to the, to the investigators in general are on a high standard. So what we've done is we've accredited and partnered with various universities to offer these training to investigators throughout South Africa. So from from um, in New South's point of view, we've got a postgrad, so you've, you'll have a seasoned investigator that will do the postgrad uh, diploma in forensic auditing. Uh, we've got University of Pretoria that offers various courses and it's a credit bearing system where as you progress, you earn certain credits up till you will earn the professional designation FPSA even an MPhil that is offered by University of Pretoria. Then Northwest University's got various undergrad and postgrad uh, qualifications that we've credited, forensic uh, accounting courses, uh, even the M's, and, uh, and some people have done, done D's in that regard. But what's also important is that a person that wants to enter this industry hasn't necessarily got an undergrad qualification can do a short course to prepare them for our industry. And those short courses are offered by, uh, in partnership with Northwest University. We call it our board exam. And what I'm also very happy to, to say is that we've, we, um, we subsidize those students to do these uh, modules at Northwest University. Uh, I think we've spent close to 4 million rands um, the last few years to subsidize um, these students uh, and 80 to 90 percent of those students come from from a poor background so uh, great um, uh, it's a, something that is is, be is becoming successful now we can see it as they enter the job market so those are the courses that we offer before we take a break um, you mentioned this partnership with uh, Northwest University does this mean the students have to physically go to campus in Northwest or are these courses um, remote? Can there be classes in other in other cities? Can they do it by correspondence? Chad, before COVID, classes were offered in Johannesburg uh, predominantly, and then distance learning is, was also available. With COVID, we've learned a few tricks. We've uh, had to quickly adapt, or universities had to adapt. So all training has now been offered on distance learning. There's online whiteboard classes. Uh, and there's engagement on various discussion groups, and that's how we do it these days. But I foresee that in future, because I like the contact classes type of thing, that we will um, we'll go back to that in future. I think it's amazing that 4 million rand has been spent subsidizing previously disadvantaged people to bring them into a space where we really need people who are passionate about making a difference and fighting the scourge of complex financial crime. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High fm 
Thank you for staying tuned to Chai FM. We broadcast in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM and globally we stream on chaifm.com. Today I'm in conversation with Krista Beer and Zakir Mohammed. They're from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. And we're talking about the importance of having the right people do the right job. We now move on to something quite exciting, and that's the annual conference. Was the conference at all impacted the last uh, two years because of COVID, or were you able to continue, Zakir? Uh, Chad, we were definitely able to continue. Uh, fortunately, we were resilient enough to be able to host our conference virtually. And we found in the last two years that that was actually beneficial to our members because we were able to offer our conference at a much lower cost, given that we didn't need a physical venue. And we found in the last two years that our conference was quite interactive amongst our members. And so we pay a lot of attention to how we constitute the conference year on year in terms of the technology that we use to make it as user-friendly and interactive as possible. Uh, This year, even though we're sort of moving out of the lockdown lifestyle, we decided to go with the conference virtually again. We do understand as the ICFB that people are still feeling the financial crunch of the last two years. And so we opted to have our conference uh, virtual this year. And we've put a lot of thought into you know, topics that are going to be relevant for what people are facing in, um, in, in the coming year and, and what's been going on in the last couple of months. And so we, that's how we've constituted our topics. Uh, a lot of our topics are technology-based, and I think that both individuals and organizations are facing a lot of commercial crime from technology. Cybercrime is huge. Uh, digital frauds are on the rise. Uh, we're navigating this new territory of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which most people don't understand, myself included. And so those are the kinds of topics that we've got in our upcoming conference. Chris, any confirmed speakers and if so, topics? Jared, I'm very excited to say that uh, Advocate Kate Hofmeyer, uh, that was the evidence leader at the Zona Commission, she agreed to be our keynote on day one. And also as much excited with our second day keynote speaker, Kaya Sitoli. I don't know if you've ever listened to Kaya speak or watched his Twitter handle. Um, he calls a spade a spade. Um, and I'm very excited to have him on the conference. And then we like, as Akir said, we've got various topics that will be related to what's happening in our industry um, during, during the last few years. Yeah, so our program has almost been finalized, uh, waiting for the last few confirmations, but topics relevant um, and very excited. I'm excited to hear about Kate Hoffmeyer. She she was my hero at Zondo, and I thought she'd be in line for the ID job. I don't know if she was considered or applied for it, but I think she would have been great for the ID position. But we have a new um, head of the ID. Let's give her a chance. Let's see how Andrea Johnson does in that post. Um, I don't know if it's a poison chalice. Um, the ID was launched with 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 much. Um, sense of 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 grandeur that it was going to be this this new scorpions yet budget that was allocated was was minuscule in the greater scheme of things when it comes to fighting crime and the fact that they were only able to employ 17 employees during their initial time and that excludes of course the conduit personnel just goes to show just how serious the state is at at fighting corruption and it, it leaves a big question mark but um your thoughts, Aku, let's move away from the Institute a bit and, 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 and the upcoming conference. Let's talk about where we're going to as a country. Do you think we're turning the corner yet? Do you think what's happened with Zondo has opened up the eyes of the public? 
absolutely opened up the eyes of the public. I think we've, we've definitely turned the corner in that respect. Uh, what we've seen in the last couple of years is a lot of the media being very, very vocal about f issues of fraud and corruption. And I think they've been a key driving force in what we've seen in these commissions being set up, etc. And so what has come out of these commissions is a greater public awareness and a greater sense of confidence amongst the public to actually start speaking out about the frustration that we all feel about the rampant fraud and corruption. And those going hand in hand are starting to put more and more pressure on government to actually do something about fraud and corruption. One example being when the KZN flood uh, disasters happened, there was a public outcry that if you're going to donate, donate to, for example, other organizations such as the gift of the givers, don't give it to government. So the public are being more vocal about that. And for me, that is the turn of the tide that we are seeing is people standing up and saying no more. You make a very valid point there because Ramaphosa came out and said that any funds allocated for disaster relief in KZN will be managed independently, unlike what we saw with the PPE debacle with that massive amount of money that by July of 2020, which should have been helping the, the most desperate with PPE, um, had, had basically been plundered. Chris, that offer of three hours a month by the investigators that form part of ICFP, any news on that? Has the state taken you up on that? Are you waiting for an answer on that? Chad, we're having a follow-up meeting um, on by the end of um, end of June, if I'm not mistaken. We're um, meeting some um, public sector representative, and then we'll take it from there. There are certain processes that needs to follow and uh, protocols that needs to be followed to to be adhered to. So, yeah, hopefully we can give you feedback after after our next meeting. I look forward to it because hearing about the the level of expertise that your organization has, looking at how you've invested in the subsidy program to ensure that people are capacitated to render such a service, it would be a waste if the state didn't take you up on that. And I think, Zaki, one of the things is that, and, and, and pardon the pun, I think the state is nervous when it comes to public-private partnerships or allowing too much involvement from the private sector because it may be perceived as a cop-out on their part because with taxpayer money, they expect it to provide these, these services from a reactive perspective. Absolutely. It might, it, 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 that's definitely my perception as well. Um, I think if you look at the last couple of years, I mean, large, small, large and medium-sized corporations in South Africa have invested a lot of money in complex fraud investigations, commercial crime investigations, in educating not only the employees but the broader public as well. I mean, if you look at the banks, for example, Sabric and the large banks, educating everyone about cybercrime, etc. There's a lot of investment from there. But where's the investment from government? Chris, if somebody wants to attend the conference, do they have to be a member of the ICFP? Chad, no, anybody is welcome. Obviously, if you're a member, there's some benefits, uh, <laughs> discount benefits. But no, public is, is, is more than welcome, and we also uh, welcome any uh, investigator from, from other organizations, other professional bodies. We're here, to sh uh, here, we're here uh, and we do this to share knowledge, to listen, and to learn. How do people find out more about the conference? 
Well, Chad, they, they're welcome to visit our website. All the details are on there, registration links and all, all that. But they can also welcome to contact me. Um, and my details are on our website. And Zakir, in closing, um, why do you think it's of benefit for like-minded organizations to work together and for like-minded investigators to attend conferences such as yours? I think for like-minded organizations, you achieve a lot more with teamwork than trying to do everything on your own, and I think that principle would hold through. Um, the more we get together as a collaborative, the more we can achieve in the fight against fraud and corruption, because syndicates are obviously resourcing themselves up. The benefit of attending the conference is obviously from a knowledge perspective, um, to empower yourself in terms of areas of commercial crime that we may not be familiar, familiar with, or that we may not have the expertise in, and getting insight from industry specialists who do understand some of these complicated frauds, etc. for example, in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, etc. Um, so that's the one benefit. The second benefit is networking with colleagues and getting to know people in the industry so that we can collaborate more, share more knowledge uh, and assist each other in the fight against commercial crime. Chris Beer, thank you so much for joining us today. Zakir Mohammed, thank you so much. And to our listeners, we will be uploading a recording and there are repeats of the show during the course of the week. If you are interested in the show, um, in, in, in what we chatted about today, you can find the upload to the recording, which should be within the next 24 hours, on the Confidential Brief Radio page on Facebook. Also on the Chai website, click on Podcast Monday Confidential Brief. You'll find the podcast of today's show. And on our Confidential Brief Radio page on Facebook, we will be uploading all the contact details for the ICFP. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I've learned a lot today, and uh, I'm sure our listeners have as well. Thank you very much, Chad.